1 Timothy chapter 5, but our scripture reading today will begin in verse 17 through verse 25, and the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and the rest of the church in Ephesus, and he says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. And let's pray. Father, having heard your holy word, and as we prepare now to reflect and meditate on what it says, we, we ask your assistance by the Holy Spirit to illuminate your word and uh, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear that by your spirit we can understand the wonderful things that you would have for us in your word. And we ask this in the name of your son and all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. Um, and as a little bit of a disclaimer at the beginning, um, it's always a little awkward. There's a couple of passages that are like this. It's always a little awkward to have a passage in the Bible that's written to you know, maybe by an apostle that's, that's talking about uh, the church and what they're to do with their pastors. And then it's really awkward then if you're committed to expository preaching, then you're going to go and preach uh, on this passage. And so it's, it's a passage about pastors, but a pastor who preaches on a pastor, a passage about pastors, it risks that I can't, are you tracking with that? It's a passage about pastors, and if a pastor preaches on a passage about pastors, it runs the risk of sounding self-serving. You know, like, so the, like in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, you know, honor the, your leaders and respect your leaders and that kind of thing. And so if I preach it, then it kind of comes like, oh, I know why he's preaching this. <laughs> you know, and um, so, so the, there's a fear that it's like, okay, why is he really teaching us this passage? Hey, it's just the next passage in, in the in the in the list, right? I'm just following on. We ended last week on verse 16. It begins on 17. So, um, so I'm just simply preaching the assigned to text for us. I have no motives here. I have no ulterior motives or anything. And um, these are just Paul's instructions to Timothy and to the Ephesian church. And it's principles about how the church is to relate with their pastors. And so this is a word that God has for us. And so let's Let's come before it um, and with teachable hearts, teachable spirit, and hear what God has for us this morning. Let me kind of, and so I have six points that kind of walk us through this passage, but then I have a couple of like other little principles uh, that are in here. And so let me give you kind of the first 
the first little principle before we get to like the outline. And here it is. All elders rule the church. Okay, all elders rule the church. Notice that's in verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Rule. Kind of a mildly offensive term in America, right? Like, didn't we throw off a ruler? Isn't that kind of like what we're all about? Uh, especially in American Christianity, this word rule sounds kind of like domineering and oppressive. Well, it, it's actually the, the term for, it, it does mean rule, but ruling in the sense of leading and guarding and protecting. Kind of as a shepherd would rule over his sheep. Nobody would argue that, you know, the, that a, a shepherd doesn't kind of tell what the, you know, the sheep or where they are to go, but he does so always with the motive for their benefit, to lead them, to guard them, and protect them. And so, just as a point here in verse 17, he says, let the elders who rule well, that's what elders are to do for the church. They are to lead and to guard and to protect and to rule over the church. It's a task that they've been given, pointed by God. The church recognizes them for that task and does it. So that's the first point. All elders rule the church. And then here's the, the point that goes along with it. Some elders or, and overseers or pastors, you know, that kind of we remember that those terms are all used synonymously. Some elders and overseers and pastors rule the church, particularly through laboring in preaching and teaching. Okay? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the idea here is that all of the elders rule. All of the elders have to meet the qualifications, the moral qualifications for being uh, an elder and overseer of the church. And all of them collectively rule. All of them have to be able to teach. But it's suggested here, and then you could see this elsewhere in the scripture, that there some within that body or that group have more responsibility for the teaching or preaching than the others do, okay? Which is uh, uh, hinted at here by the word, especially, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And indeed, preaching and teaching is work. It is labor. I remember in my earlier years, I, the Lord was, I felt the Lord was calling me to do ministry, uh, full-time ministry. I had switched my majors in college. I remember being terrified, talking on the payphone in the hallway of my dorm. That's how old I am. And uh, calling my mom and telling her I wanted to switch my majors at this you know, expensive Christian college. And that she was, I was surprised that she was very delighted that I was going to do that. And uh, so I had aspirations to do that, aspirations to teach uh, God's word. And I thought, this is going to be easy whoa, is it? It's hard. It's hard. It is labor. So when I see laboring and preaching and teaching, it's like, yes, I can, I, I can tell you. It's, it's difficult work. And the preaching, and it's literally there in the Greek, it's those who labor in word. So it's in the word, and they, the translators here will say, what does that mean? Well, that, that means in the preaching of the word. And then in the other word there, there's didaskalia, which is and in the teaching. So there's some who have the particular task of laboring and toiling in preaching the word and teaching the word and in prayer. Remember from Acts chapter 6, when the apostles were caught up in the ministry of 
serving the widows. We, we looked at last week. And they were like, you know, it's not right for us to neglect this ministry, and it's an important ministry. It's not, it's not uh, right for us to neglect the ministry of the word to do this very important ministry. It's so important. We need to assign other people for that task so that we can commit ourselves to the ministry of word and prayer. So all overseers rule the church. All elders and overseers and pastors rule the church. All should be able to teach, but not all are committed into the laboring of the preaching and teaching. Some lead in prayer, some lead in administration, some lead in counseling, some lead in wisdom, uh, and some uh, have a focus and a dedication into uh, preaching and teaching. And this is where I think uh, is where the Presbyterians usually make a distinction between, how I many of you are familiar with maybe a Presbyterian church that would have elders, and then they would have ruling elders and then teaching elders. Are you familiar with that? And so, um, you know, some people are like, well, aren't all elders the same? Well, yes, they're all elders are the same. But what they're recognizing here is what I think Paul is hinting at here in verse 17. Is that some, some focus in on teaching, and they give those different terms for that. Uh, so that's the first point. And he's leading to a main point here, and that is... Uh, the compensation for those who do that labor, who do that work. So elders, overseers, and pastors, all of them rule. Some of them rule by laboring specifically in preaching and teaching. And those who labor in preaching and teaching should receive material or financial compensation from the church. And I would add to according to the church's ability. Okay, let's look at this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The double honor here um, is, has the meaning like we saw in verse, uh, verse 3 of this chapter when uh, Timothy was told to honor the widows who are truly widows. And in the context, we understood that that honor that was given to them included material support. And so what's the, the double honor here for being uh, for an elder that rules well? Well, perhaps one, he has the honor of even just being a Christian and being a part of the church. Uh, but then he has the other honor of being an officer of the church. And being an officer of the church is not a right. It's a privilege. It's a responsibility. It's an, it's an honor. Remember chapter 3, verse 1, those who aspire to the office of overseer, they're aspiring a noble task. The task is what's noble. The person has to have the character and the, the moral life that matches it, but there's nothing special about the person. So there is to be compensation for them, and you see this in verse 18. Uh, it's, it's hinted at in the word the double honor there, and then it's also uh, there in the context with Paul's addition in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages, which I think is a very fascinating verse. And so if I could kind of go on a little bit of a tangent here to come back around to this point. To prove his point, Paul is, a, uh, is citing scripture. Okay, Notice he says, hey, the, you, the elders who labor in preaching and teaching, they're worthy of double honor. And then he goes, and here's why he gives his proof texts for it. He says the scripture, and then notice he gave two quotes there. Did you notice that? Two quotes. Um, and so when the New Testament uh, authors say we're quoting scripture, as the scripture says, 
uh, know that that's referring to the Hebrew scriptures. It's referring to the Old Testament, right? Almost every case, it's referring to the Old Testament. When he quotes here, he's, he's quoting not just one passage, but two passages. And let's look at the first one that he quotes. <clears throat> okay, why, why should uh, the, those who labor in preaching and teaching uh, receive some compensation? And he says, well, because the scriptures say so. And he quotes two scriptures. Here's the first one. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. If you look at your cross-reference there, or if you... Um, were to you know, look at the cross-reference, you can see what he's referring to. You might see this in a note. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And he quotes it verbatim. And it's an interesting verse there, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. There's no real context. Right before it is uh, some instructions about uh, how when the Israelites get into the land, this is um, kind of underneath the judicial laws there that somebody who is guilty of a crime is to receive no more than 40 lashes. That's right. That's what's right before it. Right after it are the laws uh, concerning uh, Leverite marriage, the marriage of younger widows to the nearest deceased husband's relatives to protect them from destitution. And right in the middle of that, you're sitting in just this one verse um, about ox and grain. Well, the principle here that the Apostle Paul is appealing to, this uh, general equity here, he's saying, yes, that principle that applied to oxen uh, and grain and harvesting and laboring and working in the Old Testament has a principle that applies to the church. And here's the principle. He, let me kind of elaborate here. <clears throat> he's saying that this is like um, the beasts of burden here in Deuteronomy chapter 25, like an ox, would be used for labor for an intensive kind of work, like plowing. And here it is treading out the grain. And the idea is an oxen would pull this sled, a very large sled that have, would have stones embedded onto a thing of wood. They'd hook it up to the oxen, and he would drag this thing over the top of the grain harvest to really separate and break, uh, break it out so it was easier for sorting it. And so would loosen the grain from its stalks so that they can sort it. And then uh, the grain, by the way, is also food that oxen will eat. So the oxen is sitting there working and sees this grain on the ground. He's like, hey, I'm hungry. And so the Old Testament judicial law was basically saying this. Okay, you're going to encounter this when you get into the land. You're going to be harvesting your, sto your, uh, your stalks of grain and you're going to have these beasts of burden doing this stuff, and they're going to want to eat, and if the animal is working, let him eat. The animal is to be compensated for its work, and that's what the principle is in this really kind of standalone verse right there in between. Here's 40 lashes. Uh, this is the maximum amount of penalty you could have, and then here, young widows, this is Sue. You can marry, marry a, you know, a, your, your dead husband's relative. Just this verse in here. And so it has that principle in it. Paul is applying that judicial law as a principle. If you work, you get compensated. Okay, so that's, that, there's some background to why then he's adding this verse. And so that's the first verse he adds. But notice he says, as the scripture says, and he quotes two verses. And I think this is really fascinating. The second verse he quotes is, as uh, the laborer, for the laborer deserves his wages. 
for a laborer deserves his wages. Now, where's the second quote from? from? If you were to do a word search, how many of you used an accordant, a, a concordance before? You know, you, you might have used, you have some of your study Bibles might have them in the back. Um, how many of you had the exhaustive, Strong's exhaustive concordance? It was like this tall, right? And it was this big. And the, the font was like five, five point font, you know? And for those of younger people who don't know what that is, that they did is they found every single word that occurred in the Bible and they made a dictionary out of it and they included every single occurrence. So if you looked up a word, so like you did ox, you could, it would show you ox and it would show you every single verse that that would occur. Nowadays we have computers, you could type it in. Uh, and so if you were to type it in, unless you want to go old school, you want to get your uh, you know, exhaustive con uh, 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 concordance out, and you were to do a search, where is this verse that Paul cites, a laborer deserves his wages? And you were to look from Genesis through Malachi, guess what? You won't find it. It's not there. Why? Well, wait, Paul just called this scripture. What is he doing? It's not in the Old Testament. It's from the New Testament. It's a quotation from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. You remember this is this in this context, uh, Jesus is sending out his disciples. He'd sent out the 12 in Luke chapter nine, and then he sends out a group of 72 disciples in chapter 10. And you you're familiar with some of what Jesus says in this passage. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers few pray that the Lord would send out laborers into his harvest. And then he gives them instructions as they are going out two by two. Go on your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Uh, the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. And Jesus says, for the laborer deserves his wages. So it's interesting. I think it's just fascinating. I remember learning this many years ago, and I'm like, wait a second. Paul is actually quoting as scripture a New Testament passage, a New Testament book. He's actually quoting from Luke's gospel. Luke was a co-worker on his missionary journeys. And Luke was perhaps commissioned to write a gospel and an account of not only the gospel, but the book of Acts detailing the work of the Apostle Paul and his, uh, his missionary endeavors. And Luke's gospel dates to the early 60s, perhaps 62 AD. Paul's letter to Timothy was written in about 65 AD. So already Luke's gospel was circulating among churches. And sometimes we think Luke's gospel comes first in the New Testament. It must, you know, and, and Paul's letter came late, you know, later. You kind of, we get the chronology mixed up. We don't understand that sometimes what Paul writes is actually predates the Gospels. This one uh, postdates the Gospel, and he's actually quoting a New Testament passage. Why is that important? Well, skeptics today will often say the church didn't really consider the New Testament letters to be Christian scripture until uh, on par with the Old Testament until much later. Like the fourth century, the church finally got these all these letters together and they sorted out some and they said, yeah, these are the ones. And that at the time, they didn't really consider them scripture. No, they did. They did consider it scripture. Paul cites as scripture, 
Luke's gospel. Peter does the same thing. Peter actually says, you know, Paul's letters, they're really difficult to understand, and people distort them like they do the other scriptures. Paul is alluding to, to Peter is alluding to Paul's scriptures as scripture. That's an interesting point. But his point is here is he's put together two scriptural passages to talk about the, cons, the, the, um, uh, the compensation given to those who labor in preaching and teaching. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul makes the same argument. He actually uses the same passage from Deuteronomy in his argument. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. And here he's, again, kind of stressing his apostleship as a defense against those who were kind of critiquing his apostleship. But he says this in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 9. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Okay, that kind of echoes what Jesus said to the 72, right? And eat and drink whatever they give you. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas there is, the, uh, is Peter. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So here in this context, he's talking about to the, to the Corinthians, he's saying, you know, I have as a minister of the word to you. Wh why do I need to go and have a side job working at my own expense? He says, is it just Bar Barnabas and I are the ones that we're the only ones who are supposed to do that? Does a soldier serve at his own expense? You got you own a vineyard, you grow vineyard. Don't you get to eat of the fruit? You have a flock, don't you get some of the milk? And then he, he says, and, and this, is, this is what the scripture says, this is the principle. And he quotes again, the Deuteronomy passage. And again, here's the general equity again. <clears throat> the rest of verse nine. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Right? That's a great line. This is just like, does the, do, do those Old Testament judicial laws apply to us? No, not under the, the Mosaic Covenant, because we, we're not that people in that land anymore. But there's a, there's a principle that could be applied from that. It's referred to as the general equity. Is there is a principle that's in those judicial laws given to the people of Israel that in some way in principle applies to us? The Apostle Paul is saying, yeah, he goes, is it just oxen? Is he just talking about just oxen there? Verse 10, does he not speak certainly for our sake? It is written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. I love, this is the principle that the reformers and many have had. The old, how do we understand these mosaic laws? Do we apply them in some kind of, you know, a theonomic kind of way today in the church? No, but there's a principle that can be derived from it. It was written for our sake. 
So you don't disconnect because the plowman should plow in hope. Speaking of plow, don't unhitch. You don't unhitch from the Old Testament. If we have spoke, and then he says this in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So elders and overseers and pastors, just remind ourselves that we have to give an account to God. Elders, overseers, and, the past, uh, and pastors also, though, have an obligation to care for their family, their first church. The London Baptist Confession puts it this way. The work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in his churches, in the ministry of the word and prayer, with watching for their souls, as they, as, um, as they that must give an account to him, it is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them all of their good things according to their ability. So as they may have a comfortable supply without being themselves entangled in secular affairs and may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others, and this in, is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who has ordained that they preach the gospel, that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So if elders and pastors and overseers who labor in preaching and teaching deserve compensation from the church, and, and that means then that the members of the church contribute to the funds in that effort. I left my Bible over there. Can you give me my Bible there? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. And this is, a port, this is an important corollary that goes along with this. Galatians chapter 6. Verses 6 and 7. Let me back up to verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let, uh, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And here's the key verses here. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. The one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So this is the compensation for elders, overseers, and pastors. Here's number two, the second one. Charges of wrongdoing against elders, overseers, and pastors. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And once again, here it's not a quote. It's more uh, of an illusion where he's using the same terminology. He doesn't preface it by saying, for the scripture says, but the apostle Paul would often, and other New Testament writers would often just allude to, kind of just say in passing, you know, multiple phrases from an Old Testament passage. And here, He's basically making an allusion to a couple uh, passages from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. 
You can probably see this in your cross notes, uh, cross reference notes too. Uh, and Deuteronomy 19, 15. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, notice he doesn't say do not admit a charge against an elder. Period. Elder, elders, overseers, and pastors are far from perfect. Elders, overseers, and pastors uh, will make mistakes. Elders, overseers, and pastors can fall into sins. But to those who, if you're elder, overseer, and pastor, and you're responsible for seeing the spiritual oversight of a church, then who oversees you? Well, in a, in a very real sense, the congregation does. The congregation does. Their office does not put them beyond correction. And, and unfortunately, that ends up being kind of a problem in many churches today where the structure uh, might look biblical. You might have an authority thing and they're you know, elected or appointed to the role, but the structure ends up not permitting real issues to be brought, you know, real sins or real problems pointed out um, regarding elders. If elders fall into a sinful behavior or commit wrongdoing, they need to be censured and corrected. And so the Apostle Paul does this, doesn't say, do not, admit, you know, do not admit a charge against an elder, period. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except according to the same pattern of evidence that you would have had, uh, that Israel would have had in their, their judicial system. You needed to have the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so that's what he's saying here. So, so there should be structures within the church that... Uh, that wrongdoing, sinful behavior of, uh, of an elder should be brought up. And it's usually done. Now, sometimes this could lead to, you know, very hard times and difficult times in the church. So the best thing would be, hey, pray for your pastor. <laughs> pray for your elders. Pray for your overseers. That the Lord would protect them and keep them. But also recognize you don't have no voice in the matter. Charges of wrongdoing can be brought against elders, overseers, and pastors. But following on, that needs to be with the evidence of two or three witnesses. So charges of wrongdoing against pastors, elders, overseers, and pastors. Verse, uh, point number three, um, what about correcting then sinning elders, overseers, and pastors? Well, you're to correct them without bias or favoritism. Verse 20 and 21. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Okay, verse 20 and 21 is a continuation of what he's saying in verse 19. And this refers to the elders who sin. This is not referring to sinning believers in, generally, in general. This is, this is applying to elders. And it says to rebuke, rebuke them in the presence of all. This is, or to censure could be another translation of this. It implies exposing someone's sin, but with the... Uh, with, in order to or for the purpose of bringing correction. 
So, hey, you know, this, this, is, this is some things that are wrong, and I see this is happening, and this he needs to be corrected and rebuked here so that correction could come. That's, that's the, the main verb there. But I want to help kind of clear some other things up. Those and them. For, as for those, rebuke them. This is not anybody in the church. This is the elders who are rightfully charged of a sin. So at verse 19, you're not to expect... Uh, to accept a charge against an elder, except on the case of two or three witnesses. And if you've now met that uh, standard of evidence, then those who are rightfully charged with sin and wrongdoing, then you are to bring some rebuke to them. So the they and them, in verse 21, is the elders in the presence of all, to rebuke them in the presence of all, probably refers to the whole congregation not just to the elders. And then in verse, uh, the latter half of verse 20, so that the rest, the rest there is uh, denoting the remaining elders. So if I were to fill all of these in to kind of make this clear, let me, let me uh, and I believe that this is the correct way to do this. Let me read it for you by putting those in those, pla- in those places, like filling in those blanks. Okay, so let me follow along. As for sinning elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of the whole congregation so that the other elders may stand in fear. That's the idea. And that you're to do this with no partiality at at all. And again, we've said uh, earlier, I said that there was a problem in many churches today that have structures that prohibit uh, real uh, complaints of wrongdoing of elders happening. Um, sometimes you might have the structures, but there exists kind of in the church culture um, a bias for the pastors. No, you know, this pastor, he's never, he could never do that. He'd never do anything wrong. Paul is telling Timothy, uh, no, you are to bring these charges. You are to apply these rules and these principles, and you're to do so without prejudging, without partiality. Do not hold any, no elder, no teacher, no pastor, no overseer is held uh, on a pedestal and is above this sort of correction and rebuke. No partiality, he says. And perhaps that was an issue in Ephesus at the time. Maybe there were a couple of dominant personalities or something and maybe that's why Timothy was very timid in dealing with them. And that Paul had to encourage him, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. You should, you should take the lead. You should do these things. You should apply these rules. None should be on a pedestal. How beneficial would that be to the church of Christ? So correcting sinning elders without bias or favoritism. And then number four, commissioning elders, overseers, and pastors with careful deliberation. And this is kind of a theme for the next couple here. Verse 22. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Laying on of hands. There's, this is, um, throughout the Bible, it's used in a lot of different ways and in different senses. Um, in the Old Testament, laying on of hands was uh, the transferring of sin. So like when the, the priest would lay his hands on the animal to be sacrificed, that was kind of a way of transferring the sins to the animal. In the New Testament, uh, laying on of hands, sometimes used for arresting somebody, they laid their hands on Jesus when they came to arrest him. 
Sometimes laying the hands on somebody would signify divine approval or God's blessing. Jesus laid his hands on the children. Um, perhaps, and in some cases, it was used as an apostolic affirmation uh, that the person or individuals or a group had received the gospel. So the apostles uh, when, were called up to Samaria because news had come that the, Samar- the, the uh, Samaritans were receiving the gospel from Philip. They received the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles had to go up and check things out. Acts chapter 8, you can see this. They go and check things out, and they realize this is the work of God's Spirit. He's bringing the gospel, as Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And so they lay their hands on them. That's kind of say, this is the, we're giving our apostolic seal of approval on what is happening. Same thing for Ananias with, with, uh, with Paul in Acts chapter 9. Uh, but there's a last sense, and I think that's the sense that's meant here, and that is ordaining or commissioning uh, or congregational endorsement. This is used in the Old Testament when they would set aside an individual for special service. Joshua to replace uh, Moses. Uh, the Levites, when the Levites were called out to serve around the tabernacle and the temple. The deacons, the, the, the precursor to the deacon um, that we saw in Acts chapter 6, they laid their hands on the seven that they had approved. Um, uh, for Paul and for Barnabas, Acts chapter 13, for special missionary assignment, this is kind of their ordaining or commissioning them. And here, Timothy, with the elders of the church, lay your hands on them. And so he's saying, okay, in the commissioning then, of the elders and overseers and pastors there in Corinth. He goes, but don't be hasty. Don't be hasty. Have caution and care and concern. You should, you should test them. So commissioning with careful deliberation. And then uh, number five here is just some common sense advice that's given right in the middle. He says, keep yourself pure. Verse 22 And then no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why is this in the scripture? You ever wonder, sometimes you come across this verse, why is that there? Well, perhaps, you know, this, perhaps it's admittedly doing some kind of reconstruction, a little bit of what's going on. Um, The false teachers, we know this that the false teachers in Ephesus were, impro- uh, were imposing a very radical form of uh, asceticism, right? Back to, to chapter 4. Beginning there um, in verse 2, talks about the, you know, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Uh, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who... And then we saw this. This is a list of the types of things that they were requiring of people against their conscience uh, and against the word of God who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So perhaps um, he's, he, he, Paul tells Timothy, keep yourself pure. But then he goes on to kind of say, you know what? And then, but don't think that purity... Um, 
that purity means the, to completely abstain from these kinds of things, perhaps like the false teachers were telling you. Like the false teachers were saying, well, if you really want purity, then you'll abstain completely from wine and from you know, a whole host of other foods. Paul was telling Timothy, you know, as a good servant of Christ to moral purity, don't take part in the sins of others, like he said in verse 22. But he was saying, likely qualifying this call to purity, hey, this doesn't mean total abstinence from wine. And it perhaps had a medicinal purpose to it to, to add to the water that you were drinking and um, to help with your, your frequent ailments. So perhaps a medicinal use. So he throws in some common sense advice, but then I think he's coming back to this issue about careful deliberation and caution in verses 24 and 25 to end this, this little section. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Perhaps Paul's cycling back a little bit to the care, not being hasty on laying on of hands. Um, I, you know, sometimes I hear the word conspicuous, and I get it confused with inconspicuous, which is a bad mistake, because it means the opposite. Um, conspicuous means easily seen. Do I have this right? Okay, yeah, so... Conspicuous means easily seen. Inconspicuous means not easily seen. It's hidden. So the conspicuous, the difference between conspicuous and inconspicuous deeds. Why is Timothy bringing this up? He says, well, you know, the sins of some people, you're going to catch that right away. But often, often, the sins of other people take a long time to really discern and to figure out. And so it's just, a, this is a word of caution. Remember, not, don't make split decisions and split judgments. It takes time to get to know other people, to know what sins might be lurking underneath. And then he says, likewise, so also good works are conspicuous, especially those who want to make a show of good works. Remember, Jesus warned against those who stand on the street corners. That's conspicuous, good works. But even those that are not cannot remain hidden, he says. So here the Apostle Paul is giving these instructions to Timothy on the, how to deal with, how the congregation is to deal with the elders and overseers and pastors. And I love this advice. I love the honesty of all of this. Of course, the compensation for them. Yes, they're laboring in the Lord. But they're not to be exalted on a pedestal. They could commit wrongdoing. They need correction. And here's how that correction could happen. And yes, you should lay your hands on, uh, on get a point and commission them. I mean, do that with care. Make sure that the congregation knows. It's a difficult passage to preach. But it is a good passage, I think. Because this is really getting into the, the application of what he has been saying throughout this letter. A letter that's been glorifying the work of Christ. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. The work of Christ. And that it works itself out in practical ways in the congregation. 
So it's helpful to remember the, the gospel context that lays behind these instructions. Amen?